I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair at CSIS. This is our podcast series, Building the Future. I'm here with my friend, Ambassador Jim Michael. Ambassador Michael has had one of the most interesting careers in international development. He held what's the equivalent of being Major League Baseball Commissioner for International Development. He chaired the Development Assistance Committee, which represents all of the different countries that provide foreign assistance to developing countries. He chaired, uh, so and he was also very much involved with putting together the Millennium Development Goals uh, in the late 90s. He was also ambassador to Guatemala in the 80s and has been a trusted advisor to many of the most senior officials in the U.S. government when it comes to assistance. He served both at the State Department and at AID. He's also a senior advisor here at CSIS. We're really fortunate that he agreed to take an affiliation with CSIS several years ago, and it's been a very profitable relationship for us, and we're very grateful to him. So, Ambassador Michael, thanks for being here. Dan, gee, that's a very kind introduction. I'm happy to be here with you today. Well, thanks. Can you just tell us, how did you get started in public service? Well, when I was in law school back in St. Louis, St. Louis University, I had the good fortune of encountering a law librarian who had been working at the university for a long time who said, you know, the federal government hires a lot of lawyers, and for people who don't have, you know, families of lawyers, (laughs) but who are interested in the law, uh, that could be a very interesting thing to look at. And I took that hint and uh, applied to the Washington U.S. government agencies that had honors programs. Lo and behold, I got uh, a letter back from the State Department, among others, and they said, uh, we'd be happy to talk to you. And so I went and talked to them, and they hired me. I'd never expected to work for the State Department. Well, I had thought about it, but I didn't really expect to get a job offer from the State Department. So I was delighted. So you started out at the State Department first? As a junior attorney. As a junior, and you worked up through the legal department. I was uh, when I left after 18 years, the principal deputy. I had been the acting <laughs> legal advisor through a period of transition uh, in the uh, uh, end of the 1970s and the Carter administration, and the beginning of the 1980s and the Reagan administration, and then when the political appointee came in to be legal advisor, I was the principal deputy. So uh, that, was, that was great, and I could have uh, stayed there, I think, for quite a while, and, and I was enjoying it. And then along came invitation to move into a substantive foreign policy job in the Bureau of Inter-American Affairs. Now, I had had some dealings with Latin America in my legal work over the years, And I was uh, really interested in the ongoing process at that time of transition, political transition and economic transition going on in the hemisphere. And I was encouraged by senior people in in the State Department to take on that responsibility. So I became the principal deputy assistant secretary for Inter American Affairs. Again, great job, wonderful things going on. I had an opportunity to work on an interagency basis in developing a capacity in the U.S. government to respond to this political transition in a programmatic way with support for institutions of democratic governance and the rule of law, drawing on my legal experience. Wonderful experience there. Now, that became a very difficult assignment uh, over time as the uh, conflict in Central America became such a political issue and it became very difficult to deal with that. But I did the best I could. And along the way, after I had been in that office for five years, what do you do? You don't stay in a job like that forever. And I was uh, nominated to be ambassador to Guatemala, which was one of the countries in transition, which was exactly what I was interested in. So uh, I went to Guatemala, had a couple of years there trying to put into practice some of the things I had been working on in Washington, and I learned how difficult 
that can be. And at the same time, it was very gratifying. And to work with all the different agencies in the government, try to use all of the different instruments that we have, whether it was business development with the private sector and the Department of Commerce and the commercial attache, whether it was working with USAID on agricultural development that would provide new opportunities through non-traditional kinds of agriculture to poor farmers and they wouldn't be so poor, whether it was uh, working on economic policy, working sitting with the central bank and the Ministry of Finance on uh, what kind of support we would provide in the way of balance of payments uh, for uh, their reform program, uh, the whole array of things. Very, very interesting and a very gratifying job. That came to an end when uh, the Agency for International Development had a vacancy in the assistant administrator job, which they had not filled with any political appointee, and it was open then for a career person to move into that. And so I came and talked to the White House, and uh, it all worked out. And I wound up uh, then in back in Washington and in charge of the Latin America Bureau of USAID. Again, uh, part of the gratification there was the ability to work interagency because I had this experience in the State Department, could work closely with, with colleagues there and in other parts of government and try to see how the development programs could be shaped to advance uh, our interest in seeing Latin America make that transition as a sustainable one from autocratic uh, government to democratic government, from poor to not so poor, better neighbors, more shared interests, uh, mutual benefit. How did you end up going from AID to, to the Development Assistance Committee? Well, then we had another transition. <laughs> and again, in that transition, the uh, people who were in the Bush administration left, and I was the last person holding a presidential confirmed appointment, and I was asked by the incoming administration to take on, to continue as the acting uh, administrator while the new administrator came on board. And then when a new administrator came on board, uh, Brian Atwood at that time. I worked with him in the front office and as he gathered uh, his uh, his staff. And Brian and I were old colleagues and uh, he thought that I would be a good candidate for the OECD Development Assistance Committee chair. So when that vacancy was coming up uh, that year and uh, Ray Love, who had been there had uh, as, as chair of the DAC, was interested in, in leaving, and we met and consulted with development uh, ministers and agency heads uh, from uh, the other OECD countries. They thought I was okay, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was uh, You were installed in elected. the job. Yeah. And, and what is that job? What do you do in that job? The job is to coordinate the views of all of the different donor governments that make up the OECD cadre of donors, and that's most of the OECD members. And on a basis of consensus to try to do a couple of things. One is to, to study and develop guidance that can provide shared basis for programming. Another is to collect statistics and to report back on who is doing what with their assistance programs. A third uh, thing that we tried to do was to review what each of the donors is doing. The, there is a system in the DAC in which we did a peer review where we would name two countries to review a third, <laughs> all members, and the secretariat would provide technical expert uh, assistance, and we did about uh, six or seven of those a year. So every three or four years or so, you'd get you'd pure get around. Yeah, that's right. And the bigger countries, maybe a little more often than 
the smallest. In, in my five years there, I think uh, we may have done uh, uh, Luxembourg once. Right. But, you know, but other countries. But probably U.S. Work. twice. Yeah, that's right. And I, I recall when I was in USAID that the peer reviews of the DAC were something taken very seriously, mm-hmm. and they were looked at with a great interest. So there's also a, a statistical component where I think the DAC is also responsible for the scorekeeping of what's what counts as foreign assistance oh, yes. and what doesn't, yes. as well as tracks the kinds of foreign assistance going to different kinds of countries. Is that correct? And how, how much goes where for what purpose? So those were the everyday things. I, I do want to mention... And you mentioned the Millennium Development Goals. Because I, I think you were part of that. There was a well, smoke-filled room where it's no, safe. No, I have a vision well, of a smoke-filled room. Well, like, they, they may have still smoked at that time <laughs> uh, in Paris. We were asked by the members to undertake a reflection of where we were. This was at a time when— What post- year would have this been? This would have been 1995. Yeah. Post-Cold War— assistance levels had been declining. And the member uh, countries were concerned about that and wondered, you know, what should we be thinking about in terms of support for development? That exercise led to two two ideas. We had just that year published a declaration on partnership as the way to be effective with you development. Mean rich countries and poor countries partnering together. Yes. The uh, emphasis on effectiveness sort of sprang out of the reduction uh, in aid volume, that it put a premium on making every investment as effective as it could be because there was less to invest. And the judgment that we had, that's not a new idea, but we developed it, was to look at the broad array of issues that go into development, the security issues, the economic issues, the human rights and justice issues, the human investment and capital, uh, human capital issues, and to try to develop ways of working with the countries that were the recipients of the aid in a partnership way. So we published a statement. We began to have meetings that we called partnership forum kinds of events where we would get people sometimes from civil society organizations, sometimes from governments, meeting with the donors and engaging in dialogue. So the partnership idea was part of the reflection exercise that we did. And the other part was to come up with some aspirational goals for what might be achieved through development cooperation. And we started with uh, a recommendation that was made by the Director General for Economic Cooperation of Japan at a meeting that we had, in which he said, wouldn't it be nice if we could come up with a dramatic goal like reduce poverty by one half? What was the name of that person? Uh, That was Hiroshi Hirabayashi. He was the head of JICA at the time? No, he was the head, he was in the foreign office. He was the, he was the director general for? Economic cooperation. That's, which is the foreign assistance uh, it's policy. A, it's a, the policy foreign, part. The policy yes, shop yes, in the foreign ministry. Yes, is he, is he still around? I don't know where he is. He's left government. He was, he was in private industry. But you I know, success know. has many fathers, right, and parents, or many parents. <laughs> and so that person isn't re- recalled very clearly, but you're recalling him now, and I think yeah, it's really I, important that you I recall do so. it very well because it really rang a bell when he said that for me. And at that time, I had uh, a bookshelf full of the proceedings and final declarations of a whole series of UN conferences. Had you gone to all of them? No, 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 no. no. Okay. But there had been a human rights conference. There had been an education conference. There had been the Population Conference. There was the Women's Conference. It was all in sort of a slew of five or six years, one yes, a year or two yes, a year. Yeah. And all of them the, the came out. The accumulation of a lot of work. And all of them came out with many, many, many goals. Right, on each topic. <laughs> on each topic. 
and it was a lot more of than material. you could deal with. A lot of material. And so working from that first suggestion, which we refined when we looked at what was doable and thought, well, you can't reduce the number of people by one half because there's more people all the there's time. There's more people all the time. It's but growing. But you could, you could reduce the percentage of people who are by poor. one half who are extremely poor, and that was feasible, we thought. That, that was, we had a lot of economists looking at this because we did not want to come up with goals that were, that were ridiculous. Were, yeah, that's right. And uh, so we looked then, well, how do you make this notion of goals an attractive one? One way is to expand on the idea of poverty and say, let's have one for ch- child health. Let's have one for maternal health. Let's have one for education. Let's have one for environment. Let's have one for gender. And we came up with seven, and that was the that was first, the first part. Dra- that was the first draft of, of the MDGs. Our, well, that was the first take. And then the second part of our report was about partnership. Well, if you look at the MGDs, there's eight goals. What's the eighth goal? It's partnership. Partnership. <laughs> That's amazing. And so it, it fit together. And then... Uh, what was the name of that report? Uh, that was called Shaping the 21st Century. So if I Google Shaping the 21st Century... There it would be. The Development Assistance Committee, OECD. It's yes. somewhere, somewhere in, the, in, the e, in, the, in the internet ether you'll find it. Oh, yes. 1996? Yes. So 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so what happened with that report? Because it sounds like it wasn't a report that sat on a shelf. Ambassador Michael. No, no, no. We had then uh, a lot of discussions uh, with developing countries. First of all, we did consulting before we finalized the report. And after the report was finalized and approved by the ministers and agency heads at a high-level meeting in 1996, we pulled together some working groups with people from World Bank, UN agencies, uh, developing countries to talk about indicators for these <laughs> for these various goals and how, how would you measure progress toward them. And so that made it a kind of a multilateral process because there might be one working group uh, on environment chaired by somebody from the World Bank and another one on health chaired by somebody from a UN agency. And uh, so it was not simply... Something held in the DAC or held in the OECD. And then after I left, and I left in 1999, the dialogue continued with the UN and the IMF and the World Bank, and that resulted in another report. Uh, The name of the report is... But this was A Better World for All, perhaps? Probably. I bet that's right. And that report was endorsed and signed by the managing director of the IMF, uh, Hans Kohler at the time, I believe. Kohler. Horst Kohler, that's right. And uh, Jim Wolfenson. Jim Wolfenson. And it would have been Kofi Annan. And yes, and uh, Don Johnston, I guess, at the OECD. Who was the head of the... Secretary General of the OECD. That's it. So all of them signed off on it. And it was presented at the time of the, the Millennium the Conference, and Summit. this was sort of adapt, adopted as we're going to go with this. Well, it was the, the four leaders of those organizations had endorsed it in, in this report, and uh, the Millennium Declaration was adopted in the uh, General Assembly, the Millennium uh, There was a fo- the famous Assembly. photo with all the world leaders. Yeah. It was that. And then out of that the Millennium Development Goals were formulated, and this was, you know, a basis for that. Now, I don't want to say it was the only basis. There were other things going on and other things looked at, and indeed the OECD's uh, report from 1996 drew upon these conferences that have been sponsored by the United Nations. So there's no single... (laughs) There's no single parent author of all of this, but but there was a there was but, a there was a logical there was a stream that but led. I think yeah, the selection of those goals that seemed like they were measurable 
was a part of what led to the MDGs. Uh, I should add one other thing, and that is in the 1996 report, Shaping the 21st Century, we also made reference to the fact that these are not the only goals. These are selected goals that can be measured, that can be used to help see what progress is being made. But there are other less measurable goals, like good governance, like the rule of law, like human rights, uh, that are also important. And these were all parts of what we had listed as elements that go into development partnership. Uh, so uh, sometimes now I hear people say, well, the Millennium Development Goals were inadequate because uh, they only included some things and uh, not others. And I say, yeah, but they weren't intended <laughs> to be comprehensive. They were intended to be illustrative and with acknowledgement that there were other important aspects of development. So we had, we had the MDG process that went through 2015, and now we have this new process. So could you just give me your take on how did we do on the MDGs? And what do you think of the, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs? Okay, well, the MDGs uh, certainly got the world's attention. Absolutely. It was a very simple way to encompass or frame a lot of complicated problems, and that was very useful. And a lot of progress was made in a lot of countries. Poverty was halved? Toward, the, uh, toward, those, toward those goals. Uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, some of which had to do with uh, better development cooperation. Some of it had to do with what was going on in big countries that like were China and trying India. to uh, improve their economies and uh, so, prove their, improve their uh, standard of living for their people. Can, can, can we say with some certainty that foreign assistance and development cooperation had a role to play here? Oh, I think so. Because sometimes the argument is, well, it's just all China and India, and no, no. it's really hard to prove Because that there's lots OED. of other places, and if you uh, look at some of the recent books like Steve Radelitz's uh, book, The Surge, uh, or uh, Angus Deaton, where he talked the great escape. about The Great Escape, yes, they cite the progress that was made. Angus Deaton, less inclined to see a uh, relationship between foreign assistance and that progress. Steve Radelet making, I think, a persuasive case that foreign assistance had a lot to do with it. It's a phenomenal book. It's, I think it's yeah. one of the best books in development in the last 10 years, yeah. Steve Radelet's book. I, I'm, it's so good, I wish I had written it, to be frank. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. It's a really great book. But, but so, now, so, so the SDGs, so, so there was a lot of progress made, and I think— I would buy the argument that there is, was a role that whether American Development Cooperation or the multilaterals, whether the World Bank Group or regional development banks or European or Japanese cooperation, that, that, that did play a role in this. In Changed this. expectations, I think, in developing countries. The MDGs did. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I think it was an ex a universal uh, lens mm -hmm. by which everyone could look at problems and measure progress together. And I think that was a very useful thing. Now, I think in the U.S. context, Ambassador Michael, I think we could both are. I, I think you would agree with me that not m many people outside of a specialist community followed this stuff. Is that is that am I being a little too unfair here in, in the United States? I think that uh, awareness of the MDGs is pretty low, uh, but it's pretty low in lots of places. It's pretty low in lots of places. Uh, there have been some surveys done in which people were at, you know, man on the street, woman on the street, right. uh, what do you know about the Millennium Development Goals? And most people don't know a, a so, lot. So, so let, let me move to the SDGs. So the MDGs were eight goals. Yeah. I think I would argue they were specialist or sort of institution-driven where you described a very interesting process where a number of very expert People came together and helped pull, shape sort of yeah. a first cut through the through the DAC, and drawing on UN pr processes, and then that was then drawn upon by the IMF and the World Bank and the OECD yeah. and and the UN, 
and then that was enshrined, in essence, was enshrined in the MDGs. There was an explicit process not to necessarily do it, let's call it a smoke-filled room full of experts this time. Uh, I would argue, and as a result, we got 17 goals and 169 sub-indicators for the 17 goals. Well, there's a trade-off. Right. Here's the trade-off. The MDGs were based on these conferences that had been held and which had had broad participation. So we didn't revisit in great depth. We did consulting. We had a number of meetings uh, among developing countries and meetings in Paris with uh, the member countries. We had one meeting in Washington uh, during the World Bank meetings where a lot of people were were conveniently in the same place at the same time. But for the most part, we were selecting goals that had been previously agreed. The SDGs went through a different process. They said, let's set aside those goals that were previously agreed, and let's now do a broad consultation. Let's invite all of the countries in the world all the civil society organizations, all the academic experts, to tell us what they think. And we got input into that process that was really impressive. From thousands of people. And I think that we are at a point in history where an effort to have a small group of experts come up with a set of goals for the world and say, okay, world, here's what you're supposed to do, uh, wouldn't work. Wasn't gonna, it wasn't going to fly. And if you open it up and you say thousands of people get to contribute, you have to be somewhat responsive to some of the ideas that seem to have a lot of support. And so you got 17 goals. Now, it's a lot of goals. That's a lot of goals, but when you look at the difference in purpose, where you're not trying to say, of all the goals of development, what are a few that are illustrative that we can single out for purposes of seeing if we're making any headway or not, to what are all the goals of development, and let's put a name on each one of them. Uh, which one would you leave out? You know, would you leave out? Human rights or uh, governance? I wouldn't. Pr- you know, clean production? You know, I mean, no. all, <laughs> there's, there's a, it's, it's, it, they're all, they're all laudable things. Employment. I mean, yeah, there's nothing, nothing it's in ab- there. Yeah, it's, that it's you, nothing, it, nothing objectionable. That you wouldn't want. So I, I'm not too concerned about that. You're not too concerned about that. And I think that uh, the fact that it, it had all this broad participation and then it was endorsed uh, by everybody, <laughs> and including another sustainable development conference at the General Assembly, where you know everybody voted for these goals. Uh, the, the big thing that I think that is different now is that we're now saying, let's leave no one behind. That's the emphasis that is very strong in this set of goals. It's not saying, let's see what we can do about one half of something. It's saying, let's see if we can make sustainable development a reality around the world. And I think with recognition that not everybody does everything at the same <laughs> pace and at the same, in the same time frame and you have different starting points in different countries, the uh, declaration, the uh, 2030 uh, plan that, uh, that incorporates these, these goals uh, is quite explicit about emphasizing national plans and saying, you know, national ownership of the development process. It's not that we are saying we'll all do it this way and you all take step one together and then you'll take all take step two together because you're going to proceed in different ways in different countries. But the objective is leave no one behind. Can you just spend a minute, when the MDGs came out in the Bush administration, there was some I don't know reluctance or some funniness. Can you do? Do you remember what what was that all about? Was there some sort of resistance? Or I don't want to say resistance, but there was um, there wasn't unclear at first whether this was something that we wanted to sign on to. What what do you think that was about? 
actually, uh, when the MG, MDGs came out. one or 2000. It was it Clinton was, administration. It was Clinton administration. That's right. It was 2000. Yes, it was 2000. <laughs> uh, there were some uh, individuals. Well, there were, you know, there were. A couple of individuals. There were some, some individuals who thought that, particularly, that the poverty goal was not realistic and that it was uh, imprudent for the United States to sign on to a goal that was Was there concerns realistic. that there was going to be some sort of, when it was kind of an unfunded mandate and that we were going to be on the hook oh, to spend more Oh, I heard a little of that, but I don't, I, I don't you know, it, it, it wasn't, wasn't, there wasn't that much to it. But uh, in the end, uh, there was no real uh, resistance. It was, there were, there were some, some expressions of doubt but I think that as, as far as I... It, it, there was grousing. Yeah. There was some grousing, but ultimately, um, I think the Bush administration signed on to it, and it was fine, and I think, you know, we have these yeah. new... Are they, are they a treaty? Is an MD, are the MDGs and the SDGs, are they a treaty? No, no. No, no, no. It's sort of a... It's sort of a... It's a, a General I, Assembly I'm resolution. Giving my, I'm giving my... I'm putting, it's not, so it's not... It doesn't have force of law. Well, what does uh, in in a in, treaty? In, in a, yeah, but it's it's this is a, this is a general assembly resolution. It's not a security council resolution. Okay. It's a so general it's not assembly a, resolution. So it's not a. It's it's all these countries coming together and say we, we this is what we what we want to support. It's sort of a group commitment. Yeah. Okay. So so let me shift gears. This is really interesting. Uh, I want to go back to your time as ambassador. To Gu- I want to talk about Central America for a bit because I think you and I have an interest in yes. Latin America. I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to talk about Central America. I want to talk about fragility because I think it's related to the conversation. Okay. Well, of Central- I, I, that's one reason I mentioned the commitment to leave no one behind because in the SDGs, who are left behind? And it's the countries that are experiencing difficulties of legitimate governance, of slow economic growth and unfairness, what we call, we call those fragile states. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, Ambassador Michael, I think if you, going back to Steve Radlett's book, The Surge, he would argue, and I think it's a good way to think about it, developing countries are going in two directions. We have many countries, dozens of countries, who are going from poor to status to lower middle income, to lower middle income to middle income, middle middle income, from middle middle income to upper middle income, and some of them becoming actually relatively prosperous countries, and that there's an arc you can see it. There are many countries that are on their way, and they're making it, and there's a whole oh. series of reasons for that. But then you've got maybe 30 or so that others have called the bottom billion, rather, that, 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 that this issue of leave no one behind tries to get at. So let's talk about um, what, how, how should, we, how should the, the aid agencies be thinking about this changing world of rich, some countries making it, and some countries that are just stuck in, stuck or going the absolute wrong way, no. whether in, in all the negative things that come with that. Yeah, the Brookings Institution did a report a couple of years ago in which they had two lines on a chart, and it showed poverty declining in the globe, in the world, and then poverty in fragile states, and it was pretty stagnant. Pretty stagnant. <laughs> yeah. And pretty depressing. Yeah. So, so, so that so the, the first thing you'd say to that is that governance matters. I think uh, yes, you'd have to say. And what is governance? When you say the word governance, when when someone's listening to this, what what would you say when you say the word governance? What, what what would you describe as governance? Well, I kind of like the formulation that is uh, reflected in the New Deal that was product of the dialogue. International Dialogue on uh, Peace Building and State Building. What was, the, what was the New Deal? And the New Deal was an agreement among uh, a group of countries, uh, largely uh, from the developing world. It was the countries that make up the International Network on Conflict and Fragility, which was a group that uh, was built on the DAC and OECD uh, members, plus uh, multilateral organizations and civil society organizations and a group of countries that considered themselves fragile. Uh, they call themselves the G7 plus. Speak, the plus was because the numbers keep growing. I think there's 20 now. 
and they came up with all of these together in the dialogue, came up with a formulation that uh, was endorsed in Busan at the uh, uh, partnership conference there in December 2011. Uh, and they talked about uh, goals of legitimate politics, security, justice, economic foundations and employment generation, and the ability of countries to generate revenue and provide accountable and fair delivery of services. That's pretty okay. good. I, yeah. And so... So uh, when you think of governance, I that's what you say. I think governance encompasses all, all of that. that. And uh, it's not governance, is not, is not government. That's right. I think governance is the implementation of the social contract between government and society. I think that's a great definition. And the implementation you, of the social contract between government and, and society. And that's where, a very good definition. Where that social con where that social contract breaks down, you get a situation of fragility. Are, are we are we equipped either with an AID or the World Bank or the State Department to deal with fragility properly? We have had somewhat fragmented approaches to this. Yes, we have. You said 30-odd countries. Uh, the uh, World Bank uh, says 35. The OECD last year said 50. This year it says 56. But Somewhere between 30 and 55. Well, it's uh, a lot. But what is happening that I think is very, very good and something the OECD has done is something that the, that the uh, international uh, dialogue and the G7 Plus have done is to begin to move away from the idea of branding countries and saying, you're fragile, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> because it's got a stigma to it. It is. And when... I, I wouldn't want to say I live in a fragile country. Well, and sometimes when uh, countries are approached uh, to uh, do assessments and, and come up with plans to deal with fragility, then oh, we have to call ourselves fragile. We don't want to do that. And so the, the G7 Plus has something they call a spectrum uh, in which you look at these kinds of issues that are in that I just recited about polit political issues and security issues and the justice and the economics and the ability to provide services to people. And uh, you can call that a resilience plan. That's good. Yeah, call that's, it dip, else. that's UN Diplo speak, but it's good. I, yeah. I, I'm buying it. You don't I, have I mean, to, you don't, you there's have a reason be, we have UN Diplo speak for you, issues like this. You don't have to put a label around your neck. Yeah, I, I understand. So, uh, but, but let me let me push you, Ambassador Michael. I, I my former boss and mentor and friend Andrew Natsios would say a series of things. He would say we're not equipped. We're not doing enough. He would say we need to have people who commit, make a long-term commitment even as long as seven years to, to a particular country, which is maybe that's a little on the long side, that we ought to have folks who are perhaps more comfortable around, com I'm not saying be armed, but be comfortable around conflict situations in ways that perhaps uh, we're not necessarily currently equipped to do. And then uh, we probably also have to have a higher investment in, in some very non-trendy languages, you know, and have the ability to, to speak a whole series of non-trendy languages and have deep relationships. And, you know, given that what he would say is that these are, according to Douglas North, um, closed access orders. Limited, ac limited yeah. access yeah. orders, that it's all about relationships that they invest in relationships and they, they make a five or seven year commitment to some really tough places to do that. So I'm, I'm not saying that, I think, I think it's certainly, I, I, I think it's, I, I would argue that the US government needs to have that. I think we've had 15 or 20 years of trying to figure out whether this should be in the State Department or whether this should be an AID. My view is it should be an AID. And, and then I also think the World Bank and the multilateral development banks given that the world is going in this direction, need to do a whole lot more in fragile states. I think the new ask for money by the World Bank indicates that that's what the World Bank wants to do. 
I still think they need better instruments and different kinds of human resources, Ambassador Michael, and different kinds of incentives for them to work in those places. So, so I know we, I think, are still struggling with this, and it's. I'm not well, saying it's all bad, but I, I would argue that we, we aren't in in an ideal place when it comes to fragility, whether in the bilateral context or in a multilateral. Sure. Context. Uh, now, a couple of things have been going on quite recently. One is the formation of something called the Fragility Study Group, uh, which is a, a, a collaborative effort by Carnegie Endowment the Center for a New American Security, and the U.S. Institute for Peace. And uh, they've uh, published a report which says some of the things you've just said <laughs> about the need to get our act together. Uh, CSIS has just published a report called Turning Point, which is about combating violent extremism. Yep, very important. And you'll find, if you look at the people who were on the, uh, the committee that put the uh, uh, fragile States Group report together and the list of people Andrew who put the is on this. turning point together, you'll, you'll see some overlaps. Uh, so I think there is a recognition that uh, two things. One is that there is a need to get a handle on this, that these are, as we've discussed, states that are being left behind. Uh, the other is the recognition that when those states are left behind, uh, there's a lot of spillover bad effects. And those spillover effects uh, include conflict and terrorism and other violence, uh, uh, the inability to control epidemic disease. When you look at uh, what are the you countries think about things like Ebola. Ebola, what countries were affected most by Ebola? They were Ebola. fragile and vulnerable. They were fragile they systems. They were they, all members of this G7 plus. They couldn't. They couldn't be. They couldn't monitor what was going on. They couldn't track. They had a hard time and, containing it. And it generates migration. Yeah, sixty-five million people, according to the UN. High Commissioner for Refugees are out of their homes. So, so let's let's talk about that for a minute. I, I think uh, I think the global refugee crisis, sixty five million people, uh, is not all refugees. Refugees, but, you know, refugees out of their homes. are out yeah. of their homes. Yeah. Many of them are have left their own countries. Yeah. They're they're internally displaced people, or they've left their own countries, right? And so it's having a whole series of effects. You could argue. It's impacting elections yes. in many parts of the world, yes. maybe including our country. So what is, in your view, what is the main driver of people that leave their homes? And is it violence? Is it security? What, what are the things that, 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 people, that, in, that incentivize folks to pick up, pick up where they're living and, and take a risk to go somewhere else? I think that somebody who leaves where they have been living where their parents lived, where they know uh, the language, they know the customs, they know what's going on. Uh, that takes a pretty big incentive. And I think it could be economic hopelessness. It could be despair for the future of children. Uh, it could be physical violence. It could, you know, could be any number of things that cause people to say, I can't put up with this anymore, and I'm leaving. I mean, that's, that's a rather dramatic thing to it's get a up and leave thing. your home. So, so, Ambassador, let me, let's shift and focus on the context of Central America and the context of fragility and the context of, of people making decisions to leave or send their children. We had a unaccompanied minor crisis. Maybe that's not a, the right way to describe it, Ambassador Michael, but there were 70,000 children under the age of 18 that showed up on the U.S. border in 2014 or 2013. Oh. Uh, I wrote several things, and we're going to put out a major report on the Northern Triangle and what we can do about it next month. Uh, many people called for a, quote-unquote, a Plan Columbia for the, for the Northern Triangle, which is perhaps a nice, elegant shorthand in Washington to get a handle on that we had some success and from sort of a security and a development standpoint to support a willing partner in Colombia to make some fixes in Colombia. And couldn't we do something similar in the, the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador? So Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador have made a lot of progress in the last three years. Mm -hmm. They're democratic. They're, they, they came to peace from a, there weren't, there weren't sort of armed military insurrections at the same time, in the last 30 years, um, there's been an emergence of a gang phenomenon, and there seems to be 
so what what is what why what what is driving the challenges in in Central America? What what's driving that, and what can we do? What can outsiders do to try and fix what's going on in a place in places like Central America? Well, the, the short answer is that outsiders can't fix it. Uh, outsiders they, can't fix it. That uh, one of the things that that we've learned, and one of the basic tenets of a partnership approach is that development comes from within. And it is uh, more than rhetoric to say that local ownership of the development process is essential for it to be sustainable. Well, that was the case in Colombia, that we had, an, a, we had a country that was committed. There was political will, which is the term that's often used. Oh. You had capable institutions. You had willing and capable leadership. And you had a society willing to make some changes and we were, in essence, supporting actors in someone else's drama, right? And that's, in essence, what you want in, if you're in, in development, right? Yeah. Is that a fair way to describe it? That is. And at the same time, when you look at Central America, I think there are a number of notable differences in terms of uh, the relative wealth of Colombia as compared to Central America. Colombia is wealthier. The institutional framework. Colombia has stronger institutions. And uh, the uh, stability, you might say, of the uh, policies uh, that were pursued by that uh, Colombian government through several different administrations. Estrana, Uribe, Santos. You had three presidents. That There was a política del Estado, they'd say in Spanish. I don't know exactly how we translate that into English. State policy? I don't know how we say it there. That, That across governments there was a... A broad consensus across the political political spectrum on policies. Yeah, you mentioned earlier uh, how do you deal with this uh, from the standpoint of our government? And does AID take a leading role? Does somebody else take a leading role? Uh, I think that development is a big part of the answer. Economic development and strengthened governance. Yep. <laughs> uh, Growth that provides opportunity that's not as benefits. opposed to alternative uh, alternative livelihoods in in the form of gangs or yeah. terrorism sure. or something else. But uh, I think that you have to look at what are the contributions that outsiders can make, and uh, it's not all development assistance. Support for development <laughs> has a lot of other things. So, so, Ambassador Michael, uh, I'm, so, 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 go ahead. Well, just that—that that I think that the political dialogue is important. I think there have been instances where uh, it has been possible for outsiders to supplement local capabilities. I'll give you an example. We have these uh, Partnership for Prosperity, is it? Right. These are, I think, just a very interesting idea, which is to bring four countries where the White House asked all the different agencies of the U.S. government to come together and agree on a, on a, on a problem diagnosis. Okay. Now, in— I think El Salvador is one of them. Yes, it is. In, in some countries, the idea of a fragile state self-diagnosis or self-analysis has faltered because of limitations on the capability to carry that out and to carry it out in a participatory way. With the Partnership for Prosperity, the proposal is, we'll work with you on this. And so you have— We'll jointly come up with a diagnosis together. Well, yeah, and it's theirs, but we work with them. Right. <laughs> and if, I mean, if it's ours and not then theirs, not then it's it. not going to work. But if it is a matter of supporting the carrying out of that diagnosis— Uh, One of the things that you run into sometimes in countries is governments who think they have done enough consulting (laughs) uh, at a very preliminary stage, and there is not enough engagement of civil society in the analysis. I think the outsider can say, couldn't you talk a little bit more and travel a little bit more and Include a broader array of people in, in, in your information gathering and look into 
some statistical information that you might find here and there and make it a more open process, greater transparency, so that it will be part of the sustainability of, of the effort. I think that combining efforts that way is something we can do. And I think it doesn't have to be, and perhaps many cases should not be, something that is bilateral, where it is one country working with the other, but it can be something like in Guatemala. Uh, I just had the opportunity to have a brief uh, conversation with the former uh, Fiscal General. The we, uh, we attorney, attorney General. We say Attorney General. Fiscal General. Uh, but uh, she, she prosecuted two former presidents and one <laughs> convictions. Amazing. Uh, now, she had the help of a UN-sponsored institution group that had the capacity to do investigating that would have been very hard for her to get the local police to, to, cooperate. to get it done. And uh, they didn't substitute for her as the prosecutor. It was the national institution in the strengthening of the national institutions and the courts uh, and so forth that went into these cases, but it had that supplemental help. This is known as CICIG. CICIG, yes. CICIG. Mm -hmm. so it's, the, it's the International Commission for Control of Impunity in Guatemala. It sounds better in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> Ambassador Michael, I have three last questions for you. We've had a, this has been really great. I want to shift gears now again, and I want to I want to first ask you about how should China has become a development player. How should we think about China in international development? I think we should recognize that China is an international player. Uh, I think that uh, my instinct is it's better to engage than it is to isolate because if we don't adapt the, uh, the multilateral bank to uh, accommodate Changing China. realities. They'll farm their own. They'll take know? their bat and ball and, <laughs> and go somewhere else, which they did with the AIIB. Yeah, exactly. My, I mean, my argument would be is I think there was a direct correlation to a for failure for five years to fix the allocation of votes and shares at the IMF, something called yeah. I, something that's a little obscure called IMF quota reform, and China saying, I don't have my voice and vote being heard in the IMF. This is making me think yeah. I ought to be looking around for institutions yeah. where I will have my voice yeah. and vote heard, and so yeah. I'm going to create something called the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank to do just that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you have to accept that you know they're not going to buy into the DAC principles uh, word for word. They weren't there when they were written. <laughs> what do, what do they what do they do now? They they are observers to the Development Assistance Committee. Uh, so I, I like to say they don't follow the Marquis of Queensberry rules of development, whatever the DAC well, rules are. Well, uh, they they don't follow somebody else's rules, and they measure. Uh, they're aid differently, and so uh, we don't have an apples to apples comparison. It has to be well. There, there, there's a very good work that's been done by JICA to try to <laughs> interpret. Tano may yes, have led that. He did. So it's possible to have some com com comparisons, but to the extent, and, and it's I think important to have new players in the development cooperation game who have a different perspective and who have the perspective of having been developing countries and who engage in a different way with developing countries than uh, European and, and uh, North American countries who have a different perspective. Uh, it, it can add to the... So we shouldn't fear it. This. I don't think so. But I think we should engage and try to avoid unnecessary conflicts or differences that can undermine the effectiveness of shared interests. I, want, I have two other questions for you. The, se the second question is, what are you optimistic about? I guess I am optimistic about the interest in a growing number of countries in attaining levels of respectability, uh, 
legitimacy of their governance and well-being for their people. And I think this whole business of goals has something to do with that. And I think that communication has something to do with that because everybody knows now. <laughs> they compare each other. They're not comparing yeah. themselves to France. Yeah. They're comparing themselves to their neighbor. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's easier healthy. to do now. And it's easier to do and it's healthy or uh, it helps. So while you can see enormous problems in some countries, you have to think uh, in terms of a process of institutional change that takes decades as uh, the World Bank and their 2011 uh, World Development Report tried to measure how long does it take countries to reach a reasonable level of bureaucratic uh, quality, of control of corruption, of getting the military out of politics, rule of law. And uh, they came up with estimates uh, based on analysis, and you can quarrel with the analysis, but all of these are in terms of decades. And, just, and what's the, what sort of the, what are you looking at? You're looking at 20 to 40 uh, years of, yeah, that's it's a 20 to 40 year project. Yeah. Uh, I uh, just recently uh, happened to hear a, a history uh, lecture in which uh, the subject was the way in which the intricacies of the various articles of the U.S. Constitution came together. And somebody was marveling at how little experience with democracy there was in the world at the time they did that. And the person who was giving the lecture said, yes, but we had 100 years of independent courts, of elections, <laughs> of legislatures, all in our colonial experience. And we were bringing 100 years of experience to Philadelphia to draft that constitution. Hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about that either. <laughs> uh, so these countries that, in some cases, uh, gained their independence uh, in Africa or a elsewhere, few years ago, <laughs> yeah, uh, are engaged in in a, in a lengthy process. I think if you accept that, then you can be optimistic about the aspirations, about the progress that is measurable that we have seen, about the efforts that are being made to pay attention to conditions of fragility. And we talk about situations or countries. It's people it's amazing. <laughs> that we're really talking about. What kind of lives do people have? And uh, don't people want to have better <laughs> lives if they're living in miserable situations? So I can be optimistic about that. And I think that it is worth the continuing effort. And I think it's, again, I don't think it's an aid issue. I think it is a support for development in many different dimensions. And I don't think it's a unilateral effort. I think it is a multilateral one so, where so we have a lot of shared interests in <sighs> reducing those spillover effects, the violence and the conflict, and producing a more stable, just, and uh, prosperous world. So, Ambassador Michael, well, here's my last question for you. So, we had an election 10 days ago. Yes. We're going to have a new Secretary of State at some point. Wow. We'll have a new aid administrator. If you were speaking to a new Secretary of State, what, it, what would be a short argument for why the United States should continue to engage the developing world and provide, and provide some level of foreign assistance? Well, a safer, more stable, more just, and more prosperous world means a world that is less violent uh, less providing uh, safe harbor for terrorists. Uh, it is in our national interests. And to the extent that uh, we have the more stable, uh, safe, uh, just, and prosperous uh, countries that make up that world, uh, we have more likelihood of finding common cause on addressing some of the global issues uh, that confront us all. We all live on the same planet. <laughs> and and things that happen one place can affect what happens somewhere else. Things like Ebola. Yes. So having the ability to uh, prevent conflict, uh, having the ability to collaborate on constructive measures to improve conditions around the world uh, is in our national interest. 
the fact that it's in somebody else's interest doesn't mean it's not in ours. There's not necessarily a conflict there. It's not a zero-sum game. It's like economic growth. Uh, it's not that we grow and somebody else has to get poor. We're growing poor. the pie together. If we can all grow, uh, we're all better off. Well, Ambassador Michael, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. This has been very interesting. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity, and uh, it's, it's uh, been fun, and you've made me think. Thank you. Thanks, Ambassador. 